Heavenly Father, there, there is no way to get to Easter Sunday except through the cross on Friday. And there is no way to get to the cross on Friday if not through your love. For an emblem, Lord, that for at one time was only a symbol of fear, death, and execution. Lord, Lord, as you covered it in your love, it became a symbol of freedom. It became a tool of your peace. Peace offered to us through your son, Jesus. Lord, as we shrink underneath the magnitude of that love, seeking in some way or some shape or some form to understand just what your love is to us. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word. Thank you, Lord, for the gift, the gift of forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to a good, a good Friday service here at Conduit. My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors. If you're um, visiting with us tonight, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for saying this morning a um, hundred times. I'm sure. I'm certain that I will. Um, I also, you know, want to uh, just even for my own for my own comfort, my own sense of like making sense of it all. You know, we come on Sunday mornings here, and we come to we come to church usually, and at least in some form of in some form of celebration, right? In some form of th- praise, in some form of thanks thanksgiving, and and in sometimes we even um, emotionally um, bring ourselves to a place of of excitement, and um, and so when I like when I come to like a Good Friday service, like. Like tonight, and and every year that I've I've planned a service like this or preached a message like this for the last eighteen, is this question of like, how excited am I about this, or how eager am I to, you know, to to get to the church and to to tell the story again and. And then there's always this pressure, right? There's always this pressure to, you know, like, oh, oh man, I, if, if they were here last year, then I better say something different than I said last year because, right, like something, in, something new and something insightful needs to be said, right? And, and over time, God has been, God has been gracious in, in my life to relieve the pressure off of me to have something extraordinarily insightful to say um, every Good Friday or every Easter Sunday or even every week because the reality is is that the old story is the new story and um, the old story is the good story and um, and that's what we're here to I don't know if you want to say celebrate I don't know if you want to say remember I don't know if you want to say like be thankful for or sit in or um, have the Holy Spirit speak into your heart. I'm not going to come with any assumption of what it is for you tonight uh, because I'm unsure of what it is for me tonight other than to say um, I, I want to create a space, we want to create a space where the Holy Spirit can speak to you once again or maybe for the first time the truth of God's Word that is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. But the reality is, is that the story of Jesus, or what we, what we remember and are here for tonight, um, 
is a story that starts not in the Gospels, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we might think that it starts, but the story that we come to recognize and talk about tonight starts all the way back in the, like the very first page of the word that we have. When we see that Adam and Eve, by their own, by their own choice and the, and the temptation of the evil one, chose something other than the direction that God had set for them. God said, don't. They said, we think we know better. And they did it anyway. And as the story goes, they, upon that moment of sin, they ate that that apple, and and their and their their sin was exposed, and, it's in the, and the scripture says that they were naked and they felt shame, and they ran and they hid in the garden, and then God, this is see this is the gospel story in the first pages, and then and then God came looking for Adam and Eve. He came to pursue them. He pursued them. And, and he looked for them in the midst of their hiding from him. He said, where are you? And why are you hiding? And they said, well, we were naked and we were ashamed and so we hid. And so there's just a little, a little passage in the Genesis account there where it says that, that God made um, God made skin or clothes for them out of animal skin to wear. Right? And, and in that moment, right, what was what their, their nakedness represented the shame that their sin foisted upon them. And God, in his graciousness, even in that moment where he was betrayed by his creation, where did that animal skin come from? <laughs> well, it came from an animal. That must have been, unless God had some in his back pocket, right? It must have been sacrificed in that moment. That God, in, uh, that God sacrificed so that the shame of humanity would be covered again, would be covered over. Even at the very beginning pages of Scripture, even in the beginning of the creation account, God was already telling a story of his character, that he was and is a God of redemption, that he is a God of restoration, that he is a God of reconciliation, that he is a God who covers over the shame of our sin by his own doing and offers us new relationship with him. See, long established in the story of the people of God was God's plan to redeem the world from its brokenness to sin. Even into the history of the people of God, we have, we have people like the prophet Isaiah who came before the Israelite nation as the voice or the megaphone of God himself, calling the people to repent, but also giving them hope for the future that was coming, a future that was free of the brokenness and slavery that they were experiencing now, but that was, but, but that was coming not because of their own doing or their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of one that God was sending. Not a magnificent king that would sit on an earthly throne and would be adorned with crowns and jewelry and precious fine linens like we, like we imagine now, but a different kind of king. Isaiah called him the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, he says this about this Messiah. Surely, he has taken up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace 
was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, the prophet Isaiah told us of this suffering servant and that by the wounds of the one servant, the many would be healed. We follow the trajectory of the story, of course, if we're familiar with it, into the Gospels. That by the wounds of the one, the many are healed. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how honest... I don't know how honest with your with your faith that you've ever like that you've ever gotten. And I and I mean that honest I mean that sincerely. Um, because there are some times where we um, we take uh, we take things that we that we believe or that we've been taught to believe or that we um, that we earnestly believe or have been have, have believed on our own, right? And, um, and we don't take any time to maybe even think about like the practical, applica- pra- practical implications of the things that we, that we believe. Well, I, think that, I do think that it's an, important, it's an important exercise, right? It can help us to gra- grapple with and, and grasp kind of the, what, what, we, what we know to be true about the faith, but also what, what God has proclaimed is the mystery of faith. And this reality that and the, this reality that the magnitude of the holiness of God should be in some ways, shapes, and forms beyond our intellectual grasp. That yes, God has revealed Himself to us in His Son. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. God has revealed Himself to us in the Holy Spirit which dwells in us by faith. But there is also a significant measure of the character and nature of God that is just like too big to grasp. And sometimes I come to this, this point in the gospel story and I say in my 21st century, worldly, kind of like politically charged mind, right? Is that, you know, it seems kind of unjust that the penalty for all, was placed on the one. You kind of get this picture in your mind of like this almost like forcing of punishment to a person who didn't deserve it and doesn't want it, but is forced to endure it. And if we travel down that path far enough, we end up at a God that doesn't feel very just and certainly doesn't feel very loving. But the Gospels tell a different story about that road. The Gospels tell a different story about the one who suffered for the many. It wasn't a story of... um, it wasn't a story where, where, um, where there was an unwillful subjugation of punishment of the many unto the one, but a willing surrender of the one in a spirit and, and demonstration of love for the many. And not only that, but it was like, it was almost like this internal conversation of like God saying, I am the only one. I am the only one that can truly pay the penalty or bear the suffering or endure the cross in this moment. Can't put it on anyone else. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to. It's not. I'm not going to unjustly make someone else wear that. 
When we trace the story through the Gospels, we see that God's answer to the question of who deserves this, why does God make someone else pay for what other people deserve, that God answers the question by saying he doesn't make someone else pay for what someone else deserves. He instead enters into the world of brokenness himself so that he endures what we deserve. Rather than giving it to someone else, he takes it upon himself. That's why we see people like in the, in the Gospel of John, for instance, in John chapter 1, verse 14, where John is kind of introducing, like, that he's introducing Jesus. And he says, the word, the eternal word that was with God from the very beginning, the agent of all creation, the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. The, the, the maybe the, the first practical, tangible, actual step that God himself took towards the redemption of the world was that he entered the world in Jesus Christ. He was incarnated. He was made, he was made flesh. That which was only known here to men was now known here in flesh and blood. He enters the world of brokenness. He becomes the satisfaction that sin demands as a penalty. And it was from that very moment even forward that that there was no confusion, at least on Jesus' part, about why he came into the world. It's not like, oh, he came to be a great teacher. Oh, he came to be a moral example. Oh, he came to do miracles. Oh, Oh, he came to do this. Oh, he came to do that. Yes, he did come and do all of those things, but throughout the, especially throughout the Gospel of John, you see this continual people, person after person after person after person after person, testifies to the reality of which Jesus came into this world. Look no further than like John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist, right, sees Jesus coming and he says this Look, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus had barely uttered a word yet in the gospel. And John the Baptist is already proclaiming that in Jesus, the sins of the world are taken away. Just two chapters later, in John chapter 3, verse 16, perhaps the most famous Bible verse that has ever been or ever will be, Jesus himself proclaims the reality of, the reality of his, his mission. For God, Jesus says, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son as Jesus was amassing a following and disciples to follow him and men and women who were, who were expressing their faith and trust in him as Messiah, he continually, time and time and time again, sought to remind them, hey, no, this is why I've come. This is why I've come. This is why I've come. John chapter 12, for instance. Starting at verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then down into verse uh, 26 of the same chapter, John 12, verse 27. Now, my heart is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
No. For it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. What we see in the next few chapters is Jesus walking through um, this, you know, no pun intended, crucible of torture, crucible of shame, crucible of mocking and, and condemnation, that it was a, that, that, that the experiences that Jesus had, um, even after that, like proclamation, this is the reason that I have came for this very reason. I have come. And then to see what he endured after that, we see even in the midst of Jesus's anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane about the reality of what was coming, there was still this, there was still this foundational, like, this foundational principle that Jesus knew why he came, that Jesus willfully entered into this world for this very reason to take away the sins of the world. And so if it was for this reason that Jesus came, the question that I asked myself was, well, what exactly did I miss out on that Jesus assumed for me? What exactly did I miss out on? The Gospel of Mark really outlines in the greatest detail kind of those, that last few days, really, of Jesus' life. And it's not something that any of us, um, I think it goes without saying, would want to endure or sign up for <laughs> um, willingly, as Jesus did. And the reality here is that um, we, we often do a, a fairly decent job in the church, and even in our own faith, of recalling the the physical torture that Jesus endured, and certainly he did endure that. We talk about um, we talk about him being beaten. We talk about him being whipped. We talk about him being nailed to the cross and the and and the physical toll that that has on the human body. And certainly that is a part of what Jesus um, what Jesus received and what Jesus endured in that day. But we also see significant internal, emotional, what must have been just like um, extraordinarily painful experiences that Jesus had before anyone even touched his body. Because for the last three years, he had a big crowd, big throng of people who followed him and declared him to be the Messiah and always wanted to be around him and never wanted to be apart from him. And then you had a, a smaller group of men, 12 men in particular, who were like with him at every step. And then within that smaller group was, was, was a smaller group even still of three who were with him at every moment who were his inner circle and who had proclaimed time and time again, we will never leave you, Lord. If I have to die for you, don't, don't worry. Never going to let that happen. And then when the cards were on the table, when the chips fell, everyone who said, Jesus, I'm in your corner. You're my best friend. I'll do anything for you. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. I'll die for you. Scattered like cockroaches under the pressure. And Jesus, in those moments, in that time period, when he was experiencing like the worst situation that anyone could possibly experience, faced it alone. With no support, wondering, wow, where did all these people who said that they were going to like be here for me? Be here with me. Stand by my side. Now, gone. If that wasn't enough, even the, the trial that he experienced, the, 
the political system that he surrendered himself to. Where he was railroaded through a trial. Where false testimony was given um, to accuse him in Mark chapter 14. Where, where Pilate, the one who kind of held Jesus' physical fate in the balance, seemed just kind of indifferent to any sort of justice on his behalf and essentially just told the, told the Jews, well, just do with him what you want, but don't involve me in it anymore. There was this sense that the, the people that were around Jesus had failed him, that the system that was around him had failed him, and now he was left to be mocked, to be shamed, to be beaten by those in his Religious hierarchy, the high priests, the soldiers that were that were charged with carrying out the execution, and that wasn't enough. While he was hanging on the cross, the shame, the condemnation, the mocking wouldn't stop because even the person hanging next to him was making fun of him. Finally, in those last moments then, being nailed to that cross. And as he was giving up his last breath, there was this kind of guttural, almost like reflexive response of Jesus' whole experience where he had been abandoned by the ones he had loved, where he had been mocked, shamed, and beaten, where he had been nailed to that cross, He was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. And he said, kind of with his last breath, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was probably some of the most honest words that you will ever see spoken in Scripture. Because what was Jesus saying? There's no mystery to what he was saying. Saying, God, where are you? Where are you? Do you see what I have experienced? Do you see what I'm going through? Do you you know? Where are you? Why aren't you? Why aren't you here? Because in that moment, in that moment, Jesus felt actually what was happening spiritually. The vast separation between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity had fallen headlong upon Jesus and on that cross. And he felt and articulated more than anyone ever could or would or have to for the rest of humanity. The tremendous gulf that exists between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And in the depth of that gulf, there was only one thing to proclaim. God is not here. I think the question, the question that I asked myself was a question I was asking myself this week as I was preparing this, and we always, I already talked a little bit about it, um, is how do, we, how do we approach this day? How, how, do we, how do we approach how do we approach what Jesus did? How do we approach the willingness of, of, of Jesus to subject himself to that which he knew was coming? in order to bridge the gulf, in order to experience the weight of that separation and and take it all upon himself. What do we do with that? Because it seems, if you'll allow me to be honest, it seems even a little trite to come here and say, thank you. 
right? Because I, I say thank you to the woman who hands me my coffee, right? And, and, and it's not the same thing, right? Thank you, thank you doesn't seem like even the right or the appropriate response. And, and I was, as I was thinking about this and like measuring this in my mind, I was like, okay, does Jesus want our thanks? Does Jesus require our thanks? And I think I can get to a place where I, I can say, yeah, I think that there's a spirit of thankfulness that, that motivates a, a practice of worship, right? We, we worship out of our thankfulness for what Jesus has done, but if we come just in this kind of like, oh, thanksgiving, gratitude kind of thankfulness, it kind of, I think, cheapens the depth of what Jesus did and what he is actually asking us to do in response to what he did. Because Jesus, Jesus, implores, Jesus implores one thing throughout the gospel as it pertains to the sacrifice that he makes or is going to make and the direction that he is moving. Jesus does not implore us to thank him. Jesus implores us to believe in him. To believe that we are incapable of fixing or bridging the gulf of sin on our own. To believe that he, that he and he alone came to save us from, from death and condemnation by experiencing what we should have experienced. To believe that we are forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself as unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. For this very reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, Jesus died not so that we may give thanks. Jesus died so that we may live. And that by living, we may believe. And that by believing, we may be forgiven. And that by, be, and that by being forgiven, we may be set free to eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever is thankful for what He did for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish and have everlasting life. Friends, if there is one thing that I can implore to us tonight in the light of, or maybe we should say in the shadow of the cross, is that Jesus, when we look at the cross, right, Jesus is calling us to believe. 
Believe that we are incapable of fixing our sin on our own. Believe that he came to save us from death and condemnation. Believe that we are forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters. And I feel like, I kind of feel like an um, infomercial salesman, like Billy Banks or whatever. <laughs> but then Jesus is like, but wait, there's more. There's more. Because the story doesn't end on the cross. The story doesn't end when Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb and the stone is rolled over it and the people walk away. The story doesn't end there. But it ends there. It ends there tonight. It ends there for us. Right? Because, because there, Sunday is not uh, like, there is no, there's no good news to proclaim. There's no good news to proclaim on Sunday without having to wait Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Jesus doesn't just save us from something. Jesus saves us to something. On Friday night, we remember what Jesus saved us from. Jesus saved us from the pain and the punishment that both temporarily and eternally our sin brings to us. He has saved us from our sin. He has saved us from condemnation. He has saved us from the guilt of what we have done. And on Sunday we come to celebrate then not what Jesus has saved us from, but what Jesus saves us to. The story, there's a comma right now. And the sentence can only be finished on Sunday. In God's grace, and I think in God's wisdom as well, in God's grace and God's wisdom, Jesus, uh, before he was betrayed by his disciples, met with them in an upper room. And he was, they were gathered there, presumably, we think, for a part of the Passover feast, which is what they were celebrating in Jerusalem at that time. And they sat down at a table, uh, presumably with all the fixings that they would have had. And I'm sure and I'm certain that for the disciples, it seemed like any other meal, Passover meal that they had, that they had um, uh, experienced. Jesus didn't send out an invitation and say, hey, make sure you're at this one because I'm going to tell you something really, really important that you need to know. I think, personally, of my reading of the Scripture is that it was a lot more simple than that. Is that sitting there amongst his disciples and as Jesus had done you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times in his ministry, he would use something that they were experiencing or seeing, like a like a fig tree or 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 a person, right? And he would he would use the experience as an object lesson for something spiritually much more significant and deep that he wanted them to know or to grasp. And he was thinking like, okay, how can I use this thing as a tool to teach these guys like this spiritual principle, right? And so that's kind of how I approach the communion table because I believe that's what Jesus, you know, like if the pattern holds, that's what Jesus was doing. 
Because right after that meal was when he was betrayed and arrested and went right into the whole, the whole, um, the whole betrayal and, and, and um, beating and crucifixion. And so there at that table, there was bread. And Jesus, presumably sitting at the head of the table, took the loaf of bread and he broke it as he would have at any point. And when he passed it to his first disciple, he said, in the hearing of them all, take and eat of this bread, all of you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup. And upon giving thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup, he gave the cup to his disciples and he said, take and drink from this cup, all of you. This is my blood which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink it. Do it often in remembrance of me. And not much else in Scripture is said about that moment. And so we are, we are left to, quite honestly, kind of come to our own theological conclusions about what was done on that day. And if we look at the pattern of Jesus throughout the rest of his ministry or the previous parts of his ministry, we know that he used these things as object lessons to drive points home so that people would not forget what he was saying or it would go, from a deeper, it would go to a deeper place inside of them in those moments. Why do we come to the table? Why do we come and take bread and a cup? Because it stands for us as a real, tactile, every sense, all of our senses are engaged. Right? We feel the bread. We smell it. We see it. We taste it. We can hear it ripping. We take it, we take it into us, right? It is enga- we, it is in- our whole being is engaged in this act of remembrance. We cannot, we cannot escape it. We cannot ignore it. We cannot do it without thinking through what's going on. Tasting it, smelling it, hearing it, touching it, experiencing it in the community of faith. The reality is, is that just, uh, just in, in that moment, as it is tonight, that Jesus broke the bread and he shared the cup. And the word says that he gave it to his disciples. Jesus offers himself to you. He desires to give of himself to you. To give of himself in the same way that he gave of himself on the cross on that day. Not not unwillingly or not, not forcefully, but offering himself to you as a gift asking that any who would receive it would come to receive. It's a great thing about, that's a great thing about gifts, right? Is that, is that they're meant to be given and they can only be received. They can't be taken. Right? Jesus offers himself to you. But he doesn't just offer himself to you in body and in or in bread and in cup Jesus offers what it symbolized to you Jesus offers the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of your sins to you he offers you forgiveness in himself and he implores you not to come in thankfulness or in in humility but to come and receive the gift of himself that he offers to you in belief 
that the ways in which he offers to you is perfectly and fully and wholly sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's why we say that the table here is open to anyone. You do not need to be a member of this church or any church to receive communion with us this morning or tonight, (laughs) whenever it is. Your children do not need to be a certain age or have come to a some specific intellectual or theological capacity to understand the intricacies of, of the bread and the cup. Jesus offers himself to children as well. Did you know that? Jesus offers the gift of his body and the gift of his blood and the forgiveness of sins to even little children. In fact, he says they're a lot better at believing in him than you and I are. And so while I may not understand everything theologically that's going on here exactly the way that you do or this person does or even the Holy Spirit does, what I do understand in this moment is that Jesus calls us to believe in him. And that a measure of our belief and that a measure of our faith is coming to receive the gift of his forgiveness. We have set up communion tonight in um, uh, a different way than we normally do. Obviously, we have uh, kind of three stations here, and um, we're going to do self-serve tonight. So I'm going to call the, the band back up, um, and uh, they can, they'll take... They'll take communion before, um, before they go on stage, but then they'll, um, we have, I think, one more song to worship to tonight, and that um, in the midst of that song, you can come up to any station, um, either up here or in the center or up here, uh, rip off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. If you, um, if you, feel as though like a a verbal affirmation of what you're doing in that moment is something that is important to you and that you need in that moment. Um, You know, I would imagine like just here in the community, if I was doing it, this is not rehearsed, the body of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out and broken for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe it. And I receive it. I'm going to turn to your seat as you are comfortable or as you are able. If you are not able, um, if you're not able to make it to the aisle to get uh, communion, um, just um, you know, let someone to your right or your left to your left know, and um, they will bring communion to you. Okay, or I will bring communion to you. Uh, Let me pray for us tonight as we uh, continue to move on. Heavenly Father, you are not an unjust God. Though in our world it may seem like one person's suffering for so many is unjust. What we see in Scripture is that instead of of that injustice happening, Lord, that you offered yourself, that you offered yourself in Jesus, that you became flesh, and that you entered the world of brokenness and sin, and that you came for this very reason. Look, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Lord, in in humility, 
In humility, we say thank you. In humility, we express our graciousness, our gratitude. Lord, knowing that you do not need it, nor do you require it. But Lord, know that it is the honest reflection of our hearts. Father, what we do ask is that you would produce in us belief where maybe there is doubt in this season. Maybe when we are, maybe when we doubt your love for us, maybe when we doubt your goodness in our lives, maybe when we doubt that you came to save and not condemn, Lord, we pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our faith would increase in this season so that we would know and that we would receive the gift of life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Help us, Lord, in these next few days to look forward to, to anticipate in the empty tomb, that we might walk into the own into our own tomb and see that it is, it is indeed empty. That there is no death. Lord, that you have sucked death right out of that tomb. That there is only life. Lord, we come tonight asking that you would help us to believe even in our unbelief. In Jesus' name.